0: This is Precepts Audio Message PA 466. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. All right, Book of Psalms. We're on Psalm 26. Psalm 26, the superscript says, A Psalm of David. And so this is another psalm by Israel's great king. And in this psalm, David calls upon the Lord and pleads with him to stand up for his innocence when he is falsely accused. And so in this psalm, David becomes a picture of his great son, capital S son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was condemned by the corrupt rulers of this world, was vindicated by the Father when he raised him from the dead. So David says, verse 1, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. So David calls upon the Lord to judge him. And this reminds us of the foolish idea that a lot of people in theological circles have today, that judgment means punishment. But is David calling upon God, Punish me, O Lord, punish me, I want to be punished. No, that's not what he's calling on God for. To judge doesn't mean to punish. And the judges in the book of Judges were not the punishers. No, to judge means to set in order, to determine what's right, to determine what the order should be and then set things in order according to that determination. So David wants the Lord to set him in order. Now when one is innocent, judgment means clearing of all wrongdoing. When one is guilty, of course, judgment could and probably would result in punishment. So David knows that the Lord knows the truth. He says, for I have walked in mine integrity. And we too can know that the Lord knows the truth. Even when we are falsely accused and may be believed to be guilty by all around us. So David says, I have walked in my integrity and it is great freedom to be able to honestly make such a claim. I've walked in integrity. I haven't done what I am being accused of having done. I've walked in integrity. Now, of course, David couldn't say that universally of everything in his life because David was a fallen sinner like the rest of us. And it was only the Lord Jesus Christ who could truly say, without any caveat, that he had walked in his integrity 100% of the time. But David, regarding what he was being accused of, had walked in his integrity. He hadn't done what he was being accused of. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. So he has trusted in the Lord, and therefore he he trusts that the Lord will empower him to walk in the same way in the future. Now when we walk in our integrity, we can have no confidence that we will continue to do so. We can have no confidence in our future goodness without his help. But when we trust in the Lord, then we can be confident that our integrity will continue. It's in his power, not in our own, that we can walk with integrity. Verse two, he says, "Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins in my heart. Now reins might remind us of a horse. That's not what it means here. This R-E-I-N-S is the vital organs, the kidneys. It suggested, or the vital organs here, thought to be the seat of emotions. So try my emotions and then my heart. Now we use the heart for the seat of the emotions, but that's not how the Hebrews used it. They used the heart for the inner man. We might say the real you deep down inside. So it would be your innermost feelings, yes, but also your innermost thoughts, your innermost opinions, your innermost personal judgments and determinations this is your heart the inner person so he says test my inner emotions and test my inner being and see that i really am walking in my integrity verse three for thy loving kindness is before mine eyes and i have walked in thy truth so god's loving kindness his grace is before David's eyes he is constantly looking at it and considering it and this is a good thing for us to do in the dispensation of grace is that we would consider the fact that God is being gracious that that would always be before our eyes and then David says that he has walked meaning walked habitually walked continuously in his truth and this is a good thing to do it's good to walk in his truth And notice it's not just to know the truth or to know a smattering of truth which seems to be how most Christians do it but to know it and to live and to walk habitually in it. Now there are many who mix the truth that they know with the comfortable errors of tradition superstition and culture and then they walk in all these things combined. But a true follower of Christ should walk in truth and only in truth such as he finds it in God's word. So that's what David had done. He had walked in God's truth not in the world's truth or in Christendom's truth. Verse 4 I have not sat with vain persons neither will I go in with dissemblers. So in contrast to the true walk that he has walked he has not sat with vain persons now to sit here means to sit in fellowship to sit in fellowship to sit in commonality we might say with vain persons with empty people now empty often refers to those who worship idols since the idol of course the way the idols were advertised is that this statue represents a god and by worshiping this statue and praying this statue and sacrificing this statue you're really worshiping and praying and sacrificing to the God behind the statue. But in God's view, as he looks at it, there is no God behind the statue. the statue is an empty thing. It's a lie. There is no God. You're really just worshiping the hunk of rock carved into a form. That's all you're worshiping because there's no God behind it. So empty persons could be those who worship idols since they're empty objects. And by worshiping idols, they become empty themselves they become like that which they worship. But David has not sat in fellowship with such empty persons. He says, Neither will I go in with dissemblers. Now to go in is more than just to sit in fellowship, but to actually enter in to their habitations, to enter into closer communion and fellowship. Now dissemblers are those who hide or conceal their true motives. So he has not gone in with them and their true motives often are to turn against the Lord. He hasn't gone in with such people. Verse 5, I have hated the congregation of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. So he's hated the congregation of evildoers. Now congregation there is kahal. And we know by the law of divine interchange, the principle of divine interchange, that in the Old Testament is the same as Ecclesia in the New Testament, the word that is constantly translated church. So did David hate the church of evildoers? Well, this was not the church of evildoers, but ecclesia orcahol means the outpositioned. The outcalled meaning the outpositioned. And this was often a representative body. David hated the representative body of evildoers. Now, evildoers here is from ra'ah. That word is often translated evil in the Old Testament, but that means calamity. In the Old Testament, use cancer as an evil, or a car accident is an evil. And sin is only evil kind of figuratively, and that sin causes calamity. But these are calamity-causing men. And, of course, they, they cause calamity through their sinful actions. So he hated the kahal, the ecclesia, of calamity-causing men. And he will not sit with the wicked. And again, sit here is to sit in fellowship with the lawless. He will not sit in fellowship with the lawless. Verse 6. I will wash mine hands in innocency. So will I compass thine altar, O Lord. So he says he is going to wash his hands in innocence. And it will be his innocence that cleanses his hands so that he can approach God's altar. Now we realize that for God's priests, a water ritual was necessary to cleanse them so that they can enter into the Lord's presence. But David claims that his cleansing is his innocence, in this case of the charge made against him. Now if we look at this as being, of course, symbolic of David's great son, of course he truly needed no cleansing, his own innocence made him perfectly clean. But David will wash his hands in innocence, not in water, but in innocence, since he had not done what he was accused of doing. And because of this, he is going to compass, he is going to approach and be around, be in the environs of God's altar. Now we might wonder about this because we realize that the temple was built in the days of Solomon, David's son. But we need to remember that there was an altar, the bronze altar for sacrifice to the Lord, that was in use from the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness under Moses from that time on. Just because it speaks of an altar, this this does not refer to the temple altar, which was not yet built, but the bronze altar that was built in front of the tabernacle. Now when David was forced to flee, he was cut off from worshiping at the tabernacle. And yet he is confident that Jehovah will bring him back to worship before his altar again, thanks to his innocence of the charges that have been brought against him. So because of his innocence, he will be cleansed to approach God's altar. Verse 7, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wonderful works. So he's going to publish with the voice of thanksgiving, and when he is restored, he will give Jehovah the credit and the praise for his restoration. So this is going to result in Thanks. Now, this is very important. This is a very important topic often in Scripture of the thanks that we owe the Lord. And we realize how crucial it is to be thankful and how much sin can be caused by lack of thanksgiving. In, In Romans 1, one of the first two steps down the downward spiral away from God is to fail to be thankful, to fail to acknowledge him as God and to fail to be thankful. And David, when he is restored to God's altar, he will publish about the Lord with a voice of thanksgiving. And he will tell of all his wonderful works. And of course, those would be the wondrous works he'd done for David. And we too should be quick to tell of all the extraordinary works he has done for us in saving us, and as we read in Ephesians, in all the glorious things he has predestined us to and done for us through his grace in Christ. So we too should be quick and willing and eager to tell of God's extraordinary works toward us. Verse 8. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. So David says he loves the habitation or the dwelling of his house. Now, of course, this does not refer to the temple because the temple hadn't been built yet. And David had not even hatched his plan of building God a permanent building at this point. That happened after David was on the throne. And all the evidence here would lead us to believe that this was during David's earlier exile, when Saul had accused him falsely of wanting to assassinate him and tried to put David to death. Of course, in his later exile under Absalom, there's no way he could have said that he was innocent and he'd washed his hands in innocence and asked God to vindicate him because he hadn't done anything wrong. So clearly this is the earlier exile. So David hadn't even planned the permanent building yet. But what he means by the habitation of the Lord's house is the tabernacle, which David had built, which David had often resorted to. And we saw even when he was on the run from Saul, he resorted there. And of course, unfortunately, his going there caused Saul, in his paranoid fear, to wipe out the priestly family. And as horrible a thing as that was, that was all the Lord's will because, remember, the Lord had cursed the family of Eli. So Saul's paranoid, delusional fear caused the Lord's will and destruction on the family of Eli to come about. But David loved the habitation of God's house, the dwelling place of his house, his tabernacle, in other words, and the place where thine honor dwelleth. So the tabernacle is the place where his honor dwells. Now, this is a strange thing to us because we know that there is no physical location on earth that is particularly identified with God at this point, that the one who made heaven and earth, that he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. But we understand that God in the past identified himself with this tabernacle. He said, this is my tabernacle. He placed his presence there, which meant he identified his presence with that place. And so his honor actually dwelt there. Now the word honor there is also translated glory. And so the Lord identified this place, this tabernacle, with his character and his reputation, his true reputation based on his true character. So his glory was connected with that tabernacle. And that was the place where his glory dwelleth. It means tabernacles, the place where your glory tabernacles. And so that clearly is referring to the tabernacle in Israel. And David loved that. He loved God's tabernacle. Verse 9 Gather not my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloody men. So he calls on God not to gather. The Bollinger says instead of gather not, he says destroy not. He says the Hebrew word asaph is a homonym, could mean gather or could mean to destroy he says this means he says destroy not my soul with sinners soul there is nefesh word for soul meaning me myself don't destroy me my very person with sinners nor my life life there is che the Hebrew word for life and that's another figure for himself gather not my che my life with bloody men Buddy, there, of course, refers to the fact that they are violent men. And it's Enosh here, mortal men. So don't gather my life with violent, mortal men. Verse 10, and whose hands is mischief? And their right hand is full of bribes. So their hands are full of unrighteous acts. Of course, their hands being full of them, that symbolizes the fact that they're constantly doing unrighteous acts. And their right hand... Their strong hand is full of bribes. And David, as a ruler, rejected bribes. He would not be bribed, and he, in this case, will not bribe his way out of trouble. So, he says, I am not one with those who give out bribes to get favor, or who receive bribes in order to grant favors. No, no, don't gather me with them, because I'm not like that sort of man verse 11 but as for me I will walk in mine integrity redeem me and be merciful unto me so David has integrity and this is what he walks in he doesn't walk in bribes he doesn't walk in violence and that's why his soul is not gathered with sinners now this is David's determination that he is not going to walk And continue to walk in the ways of his God. And not in the ways of these violent men. So he says, redeem me. In other words, deliver me. And be merciful unto me. Or be gracious unto me. Show me favor. So he wants God's grace. So in spite of his integrity, in spite of the fact that he walks in integrity, he still recognizes his need for Jehovah's mercy for his grace. We realize that even when we walk uprightly and in integrity, we still are not 100% blameless. We still are in need of God's grace. David certainly recognized that. Verse 12, my foot standeth in an even place. In the congregations will I bless the Lord. So his foot stands in an even place, and this represents a a solid place he has we might say solid footing he's standing on solid footing he's got a sure place to stand and then he says in the congregations will I bless the Lord now this is not Kahal it's plural here in the assemblies Bollinger suggests this is the plural of majesty in the great assembly Now this particular word for assembly only occurs three times. The assemblies. And one possibility seems to mean the choirs. Of course, David here is writing a psalm. It's a song in which he will sing praise to the Lord. So maybe he means in the choirs he will praise the Lord. Now imagine what it would be like to attend a concert put on by David. And he himself is taking part and singing in it. That would be something else, wouldn't it? And I think that will happen in Israel and the kingdom of God. There will be concerts put on by David. Now Israel is the only place that will happen. David will not do world tours. As the scripture says, how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? You can't do it. Songs of Zion can only be sung in Zion. I think in Zion, David will put on concerts. And in those choirs, he will bless, he will speak well of Remember our English word "bless" is a very nebulous word. Who knows exactly what it means? But this word "barak" means to speak well of. In the in the assemblies, the great assembly, he will speak well of the Lord. So David goes from calling on God to judging him to judge him. To in this last verse, he is confident that God will vindicate him that he will be brought back to solid standing and then he will have the opportunity to bless the Lord. And while that did happen in the past, David was brought through his exile, returned to his confident standing as king. But in the future is when this will fully have its fulfillment, when David will again be exiled in the tribulation period through no fault of his own, only false accusations can ever be brought against him. And the Lord will mercifully bring him back, through his grace, to his former position once the tribulation period is over. And then he will again have the opportunity to bless the Lord. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. So this is another psalm by David, Israel's great king. And he calls here upon the Lord for help in a time of trouble and adversity. Enemies are against him, but he trusts in the Lord for his help. So he says, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So here we have a great statement of confidence by David. And this is very appropriate to many times in his life when he was faced with seemingly certain destruction at the hands of his enemies, only to be saved by the strong help of Jehovah. So he says, The Lord is his light and his salvation, his deliverance. The Lord will bring his deliverance to light. And so because of that, who should he be afraid of? Who may fear in light of such a great Savior? Then the Lord is the strength of his life. In other words, the strength that protects his life. So of whom then should he be afraid if the Lord is the strength protecting his life? Verse 2, when the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. So here he speaks of the wicked, and this is Raa again, that Hebrew word we have often translated evil, but it means calamity causing. When those who caused calamity came upon him, those who sought to harm him, in other words, even mine enemies and my foes, they came upon me to eat up my flesh, in other words, they were not literally cannibals, but in other words, they were coming upon him to destroy him. They wanted to put him to death. And yet, he says, they stumbled and fell. Now, this certainly could be figurative, meaning that they failed. They came to destroy to destroy me, but they failed. But if we were to think of a particular circumstance, like perhaps a situation when David was fleeing from his enemies, remember, after McCall helped him to escape from his house through the window and they were chasing him through the city, well, maybe stumbling and falling might be literal in that case. They were chasing him to to kill him, to put him to death, and they stumbled and fell so they couldn't catch him. Verse 3, Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. So he says, Though a host, and a host there is an army, An army should have camped against me. He had a whole army trying to destroy him. And armies did camp against David. Saul's army, for one. David and his few hundred men were chased by Saul and all Israel's army and even surrounded. And they prepared to destroy him. And yet the Lord rescued him. And the Philistines. Philistine army often encamped against David, surrounded him. And many other times, David was had armies encamped against him after he became king and yet he says his heart his inner being did not fear he didn't look at that enemy army and tremble why because of his strength and his salvation he says though war should rise against me and that too happened many times even before he became king like I said with Saul and then after he became king many times he faced war And he says, in that situation, in this will I be confident. So in spite of all this, David's confidence was not in the size of his own force compared to the enemy force. But his confidence was in Jehovah, who was his salvation. Verse 4, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So he says, One thing have I desired of the Lord. And this was not the only thing that David ever asked the Lord for. We know many things David asked the Lord for, even in the Psalms. But this means that this was the primary or the most important thing. This was the thing above all other things that he desired of the Lord. And this is what he sought after, this was his ultimate goal. And what was that? Well, that he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And the house of the Lord, there's no doubt about it, that was the temple of the Lord. And we can see that in the last line of this verse, to inquire in his temple. So the house of the Lord is his temple. And the same is true of the phrase, the Father's house in John 14, when he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. The house of the Lord, the house of God, as Jesus Christ put it, the Father's house, is always the temple. And it's never a reference to heaven, like a lot of people erroneously use the phrase the Father's house today. Now David never lived in the temple in the past, though he probably often visited the tabernacle. He certainly speaks of visiting the tabernacle. We see him visiting the tabernacle on Samuel and in Chronicles. And besides visiting the tabernacle, David also is the one who planned the permanent temple building. And he even chose what the temple site would be. And David wrote up the plans for the temple. And so he probably often visited the site to compare it to the plans. Probably often visited the site where the temple was to be built by his son Solomon. Yet in spite of this, never did he dwell there. Still he desired this of the Lord and his desire will be fulfilled. He will receive this desire. The Lord gave him this desire and he will receive it because we know that David will be prince over Israel in the future under Jesus Christ will be the king. And we can read of this in Ezekiel chapter 34 where in verses 23 through 24 it says, And I will set up one shepherd over them that is over Israel, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. And then in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 25, it says the same thing. It says, And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. So David will be prince over Israel in the future. And not only will he be prince, but he will dwell in God's holy district of the temple. Ezekiel 45, In verse 6, where it's describing the holy district, it says, And he shall appoint the possession of the city, 5,000 broad, and 5 and 20,000 long, over against the oblation of the holy portion. It shall be for the whole house of Israel. Verse 7, And a portion shall be for the prince on the one side, and on the other side of the oblation of the holy portion, and of the possession of the city before the oblation of the city from the west side westward and from the east side eastward. And the length shall be over against one of the portions, from the west border on the east border. In the land shall be his possession in Israel, and my princes shall no more oppress my people. And the rest of the land shall they give to the house of Israel according to their tribes. So here we read of a portion in the holy oblation for the prince. And earlier in Ezekiel, we saw that the prince was David. So David didn't just wish this, a vain wish that would never happen. This is going to be true. David is going to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life in the kingdom. His center of activities, his dwelling place, his home will be in the Lord's house. And all the days of his life, well, we realize that David's life did not end at his death. He will live again in resurrection. And it's then in resurrection that David will dwell in the house of the Lord. Now he says he wants to do that to behold the beauty of the Lord. And of course, this is not just physical beauty, but this is all that is good and pleasing about him. David wants to behold it by dwelling in his house and he wants to inquire in his temple. Now that word temple is the word palace. It is used of heaven, but it's often used of the temple and even of the holy place as well. So he is going to inquire in his palace, in his holy place, in other words, in the temple. Verse 5, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Now David speaks of the time of trouble. And what time of trouble is this? Well, could this be the time of trouble spoken of in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. So could the time of Jacob's trouble be the time David is referring to? I believe this is a reference to the tribulation period. We've seen often in these early Psalms that David's troubles in the past are compared to the troubles he will face in the tribulation period in the future. Now, so he says, in the time of trouble, in other words, what we call the tribulation period, he shall hide me in his pavilion. The word pavilion there is also, could mean a den or a secret place. He will hide me in his secret place. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. And I believe that in the tribulation period, when we know that the rebels are going to force David off the throne, we read of that in the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Because in Daniel, chapter 9, as we discussed when we studied the book of Daniel, when it speaks of Daniel's 70 weeks, it says in verse 26, And after three score and two weeks, after sixty-two weeks of years shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself or a better translation might be and have nothing but it could also be not for himself in other words not for any cause in him and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and so forth so after 62 weeks of years Messiah is going to be cut off. Now David is called Messiah. He is God's anointed. He is God's Messiah. David will be God's Messiah on earth, even while Christ is God's Messiah in heaven. And when the rebels arise in the tribulation period, their ire and their animosity is going to be against all God's appointed rulers that he had appointed in the kingdom. And of course, one of those primary rulers will be David. So they will force David off his throne, no doubt, through a lot of false accusations like we see in the Psalms here. Now when David is cut off the throne, I do not believe he is immediately forced to flee. Instead, as we read here, Jehovah is going to take him and he's going to hide him right there in his temple district in a hidden place, in a secret place within his tabernacle, in a secret place within his holy district. And where that secret place will be, what that secret place will be, who knows. But I believe that David will remain there until the abomination of desolation is set up and the flight to the mountains takes place, which happens toward the end of the tribulation period. After the three and a half years of the covenant, when the three and a half years of the great tribulation is about to take place. Well, when the abomination of desolation is set up, then all who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains, and I believe that David will flee with him. And in many of these psalms and the first book of Psalms here, we have seen David's flight from Absalom in the past or his flight from Saul in the past compared to that flight he's going to have to take in the future. So this tells us that before that flight, David is going to be hidden in a secret place in God's tabernacle, in his temple of the future. And he shall set me up upon a rock, in other words, in a place of complete safety. Even while his enemies are searching for him, would love to find David, would love perhaps to assassinate him he'll be right there in the temple where he always was yet hidden in a secret place and we can I cannot but compare that to David on the run from Saul where did David go when he was on the run from Saul he went into Judah, his own home tribal lands and he just hung out in Judah in the wilderness and Saul couldn't find him Jonathan goes off into the wilderness and he just it seems walks into David's camp has no trouble finding him but Saul and all his army can't find him Well, David in the tribulation period will be the same thing. He'll be right there in the temple where he always was. But he'll be in a hidden place and nobody, none of his enemies anyway, will be able to find him. His friends, maybe, like Jonathan, no problem. But his enemies won't be able to find him because God will have him in complete safety. Verse 6, And now shall mine hand be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord, so now, even then in the past, David's head would be lifted up above his enemies round about him. well that would certainly be true in the in the future as well that all his enemies that will surround him will want to destroy him he will be his head will be lifted up, he' will be kept in safety, and the same thing was true David in the past he says, therefore, will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy, and of course. This would be once the trouble was over. Victory comes after trouble. And he offers sacrifices in the tabernacle with shouts of joy or joyful shouts to go along with those sacrifices. And at that time, once the victory is won and once his safety is assured and his enemies are defeated, he will sing, yes, he will sing praises unto the Lord. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me, and answer me. So in verse 6, he was speaking from expectation of victory. And now he returns from there to present distress. And he calls upon God again when he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. So he calls upon God to hear him. Of course, and not only to hear, but also to answer. Then have mercy... Also upon me and answer me. And mercy there is again, show favor or be gracious. And again, grace is the basis of every prayer. He calls upon God's grace to answer him. Verse 8 When thou saidst, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Bolger suggests to thee, my heart, he hath said, Seek thou my face. Thy face, O Jehovah, will I seek. So the Lord tells David to seek his face, and David responds that he will seek his face. Now Sellers points out that when the Lord calls upon us this way that we should respond like David did. When he says, seek my face, we too should say, yes, Lord, your face will I seek. Or he referred to John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And when we read that, let our hearts say, yes, Lord, I receive you. Yes, Lord, I believe on your name. Or when he says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That we too would say, Yes, Lord, I believe in your only begotten and your unique Son. I believe in him. Or when he speaks in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. And when he says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. If we say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Jehovah. And yes, I believe that God raised him from the dead. So when he says these things, let our hearts say the same. And then finally in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing, regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That we would say the same. We would say, I don't bring you works of righteousness, Lord. I don't bring you works of righteousness to be saved. But I trust completely in your mercy, in your grace, to save me. So we should have the same attitude David did. When the Lord says, seek me, and when the Lord says, seek me this way, Seek me through my Son. That our hearts will answer to his words and will say, Yes, Lord, that's what I'm going to do. Then verse 9. Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. So when he calls upon God to hear him and answer him, he calls upon him not to hide his face from him. Of course, hiding his face would mean that he would not respond, that he would not answer his plea, that he would not come to save and rescue him. So he says, don't hide your face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger, and servant there should be slave. Don't put your slave away, don't put him away from you in anger. He says, you have been my help. The Lord had been his help already many times in the past. And so he wants him to continue to be his help now. He says, leave me not, neither forsake me, O God, of my salvation. And of course, he did not. But we can't help but remember Christ's words on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we realize that the reason we, fallen sinners that we are, the reason we are not forsaken by God is because Jesus Christ was forsaken. He was forsaken in our place. He says, leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. Now that's a wonderful descriptive phrase. He was the God of David's salvation, and he is the God of our salvation as well. Amen. We have a God who is the God of our salvation. Verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Well, we think of it as unlikely that a father or mother would forsake us, but they might. As unlikely as it is, fathers and mothers have been known to do that. And yet, though father and mother might, Jehovah never will. He says, then the Lord will take me up. Now, Rotherham, in his book on the Psalms, points out the use of this same word for take me up in 2 Kings 5, 3, 6, 7, and 11, in the story of Naaman the Syrian. And the word there is translated recover, for recover a man from his leprosy. So if we used it, translated it the same way, it would say, then the Lord will recover me. Now as we go through the book of Psalms, we get the impression that David might have been, David certainly was struck with a terrible illness, after a sin with Bathsheba, and it may even have been that very same terrible illness of leprosy. We see that in Psalm 38. And verse 5, My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. Verse 7, For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. Verse 11, My lovers and my friends stand aloof from me, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Now of course leprosy made the person who was a leper unclean and everyone who was clean was supposed to stand afar off from them. The leper was supposed to cover his mouth and when anyone came near he was supposed to cry unclean, unclean to warn them not to come near because his uncleanness could pollute them. And in the case of leprosy of course David's lovers and his friends, even his kinsmen, his relatives would stand far off from him. And so if this was that same case, his father and mother would have forsaken him. They would stand far off from him because he was polluted by leprosy. Yet Jehovah was still with him, and Jehovah did indeed recover him, just like Naaman the Syrian recovered, David recovered as well. Verse 11, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. So he calls upon God, the Lord Jehovah to teach him his way. And we too should want this. We should want our Lord to teach us his ways. Now his ways are sometimes hard to discern in the murky light of this world. And yet his ways are the right ways. And it is the clear light of the word of God that can point those ways out to us. So we too should long for Jehovah to teach us his ways. And then he says, and lead me in a plain path. Or this could be a a smooth path. And he says to do that because of mine enemies. Now we too have enemies who are always ready to trap us if we take a misstep. So we need a smooth path. We need an easy path to follow. We need to know God's ways in order to not step off the path and into danger of the enemies of the Lord who are always ready to pounce. Verse 12, Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. So he calls upon God not to deliver him over to the will of his enemies. But will there is the Hebrew word nephesh, which is often translated soul. Now he realize that one meaning of the word soul is of the desires, the emotions, and the desires like our desire for food, our desire for shelter, for comfort. Those are things of the soul. The soul is related to the emotions and the desires. So if David was delivered to the soul of his enemies, that would mean to their desire. Of course, what their, the desire of his enemies was to destroy David. And he says, don't deliver me over to that desire. He says, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. Now this happened, as we've already discussed it, in the days of Saul. It happened in the days of Absalom and Hithophel when they were raising up a rebellion against David. And that would fit. In this case, of course, David hasn't talked about his integrity here like he did in Psalm 26. And he has talked about this illness. So perhaps this was the later time but there were false witnesses certainly against david in the past and that will happen again no doubt as i've already said in the tribulation rebellion to justify forcing david off the throne why in the world what excuse do they give for forcing david off the throne they would have to come up with some kind of false accusation against him but the ones who accuse them are such as breathe out cruelty they they don't have good motives these are cruel wicked men who are testifying against david Verse 13, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Now, the other words, I had fainted, Bollinger points out that this word occurs in the Hebrew, but he says the Hebrew word has the extraordinary points in the manuscripts to show that the Masoretes, those were the ones who carefully guarded the texts, so the Masoretes regarded the words I had fainted, as not having been in the primitive text. But, so it's in the modern manuscripts, but it's marked that it shouldn't be there. They're not wanting to remove it, but they just mark it as being spurious. So their presence accounts for the insertion of I had fainted in the King James Version. Now he says these words are not found in some codices, They're not found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation. They're not found in the Syriac, the Aramaic translation. They're not found in the Vulgate, the Latin translation. And he suggests the verse should read, I have believed that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So in spite of the fact that David is threatened by his enemies and cut off by this evil disease, he is convinced that he is going to see the goodness of the Lord. And that, of course, will be in the kingdom of God to come. He will see God's goodness. Because the kingdom is the time God's goodness will be on display. Or, in the future context of the tribulation period, it will be in the parousia of Christ to come. He will see the goodness of the Lord, he says, in the land of the living. And that is Eretzchei. Note, he's not going to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the dead like most people would make it out to be. This is not life after death. This is life after resurrection. David will see the Lord in the land of the living, not in the land of dead people who have gone to heaven. Verse 14, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So he calls on all God's people to wait upon him. To look to him in all their trouble, just like David looked to him in his trouble. He says, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thy heart, even as he had strengthened David's. And so he repeats it Wait, I say, on the Lord. So he ends the psalm with the same confidence that began it. So even in the worst of troubles that David faced in the past, and yes, even in the time of trouble to come, he, Jehovah, is the one upon whom to wait. And we, too, wait on him for our ultimate hope. There are many, many broken things in this world that can never be permanently fixed until his kingdom comes. So if we want to see all the glorious things we hope for, we must wait on him. So that is Psalm 27, another glorious psalm of David's confidence in the Lord. And there's much more to come in Psalm 28 and beyond, but we are out of time for today and we'll continue in Psalm 28 in our next study.